and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch, Dispatch Media, and thedispatch.com. Sometimes when I do this intro, I feel like Yosemite Sam on the deserted island talking about um, all the different coconut dishes he's going to eat, because I just keep saying dispatch over and over again until the word has no meaning. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by me. We don't have a sponsor today, but I do want to give an extra shout out to our friends at Scout and Zoe's who advertised on last week's solo podcast, and I kind of felt like I didn't do them justice. Uh, it really is a great company. They have some great products. Um, you know, it's one of these kind of ideas for uh, dog treats that actually works on almost every kind of level, um, and cat treats, I should say. Uh, because it's good for the environment, it fights invasive species, it helps people who really need a hand up and a help out. And um, and f- as far as I can tell, the do- the products themselves are super popular with uh, quadrupeds. Now, not, maybe not all quadrupeds, but um, my own focus group of quadrupeds, they were pretty successful with. Um, and once you get past some of the initial... Uh, um, unusualness of some of the products, you know, the freeze-dried fish, the oxtails, and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty cool. Cool. And uh, so you should check it out. Anyway, just wanted to get out there because I felt guilty. Um, So I have, you know, I I have no huge agenda today. Um, Last week, I got some blowback from people saying I spent too long summarizing uh, the two G files of the week. And I hear you, you know, to be honest, the the way this was originally sort of conceived was that this was just going to be sort of a follow-up of the G-File kind of thing. But I agree, um, there's really no point in that. I'd like you guys to actually um, read the actual G-File rather than just listen to me summarize it. And if you do actually read the G-File, you probably don't want to listen to me summarize it. So I'm not going to do that. Um, Simply to say, although I will, you know, summarize it a little. Wednesday's G-File was all about uh, the, just the, the just barbaric stupidity of some of these mobs uh, tearing down statues willy-nilly. This is someplace where I actually agree with Donald Trump. I think a lot of these guys have no idea whose statues they're tearing down. They just think it would be cool and interesting. You know, young people, you know, like to break things and defy authority. Uh, and this is how they're doing it. And... So my, well, my contempt for the people tearing down statues of abolitionists, um, including this guy in Wisconsin who gave his life fighting slavery, um, my contempt for them is complete, but I don't think it really, you know, the problem is, is that they're not people worth arguing with because they don't have an argument. They just have emotions. They just have the sort of mob-like passion of the crowd and they're acting on it. And I don't, th- and I think, you know, one of the things that got America into trouble in the 1960s was taking riot ideology seriously as a coherent worldview. It's, it's, it's nonsense. But so my real problem was with the politicians, the progressive, the liberal, the democratic politicians who do take riot ideology seriously and who are trying to create, I know I overuse this phrase, permission structure 
but they're trying to create a climate to foster a context in which this ass-pounding stupidity is somehow justified or even praiseworthy. And it's just not. It's just, it's, it's, this is how, you know, I mean, look, I, I don't think, I know I wrote a book called Suicide of the West, but I don't think society is going to fall apart because of these mobs. Um, I do think that society could fall apart if enough leaders of important institutions, including like the Speaker of the House, the Governor of New York, the Governor of Virginia, if these people actually just start internalizing uh, forgiveness and encouragement uh, for mobs as the sign of um, being virtuous, that's a really dangerous thing. And that's why I, you know, was, I'm just so mad at those people about all of this kind of stuff. I have contempt for the, the, the mobs, but, you know, I reserve my real anger to the people who should know better. And in today's column, I, I kind of pick up on the same, or today's G-File, I kind of pick up on the same theme. I get into a long uh, history of the word empathy and where it comes from in German historical thinking. Not long, but longer than any other you'll read this week. And I, um, and then I turn to Trump's uh, primary problem. Well, actually, before I get to the Trump thing, I should say my larger point is I was really pissed off when I saw this piece from this, this piece tweeted out from this newspaper talking about how Tina Fey and Jimmy Kimmel are struggling to keep their hosting gigs for something or other um, amidst the scandal of their using blackface in 30 Rock and I guess on The Man Show or whatever that thing was called. And it's not a scandal. When it happened, no one cared. And if we live in a world in which we can retroactively go back and declare things that were not controversial at the time, that nobody condemned, that nobody thought were bigoted, and I still don't think was bigoted. I don't think what 30 Rock did or what Kimmel did was bigoted. I mean, particularly on the Kimmel thing, one of the things that really, I didn't write about this, but you know, one of the things that really bothers me about it is he wasn't doing blackface in the old sort of, you know, racist, you know, lawn jockey, step and fetch it, whatever those things are, kind of way, or not even in the racist way that um, uh, Gary Northam, the governor of Virginia did. He was doing an impersonation of a specific person and they were trying to make him look like Carl Malone. And the idea that, you know, one of the things that makes blackface racist historically is that it's supposed to be an impersonation of, of a generic black person. That's what makes it racist, is this caricature of black people that white people would do. But doing an impersonation of Carl Malone where you put on makeup to look more like him, um, I'm open to the idea that it was ill-advised Ill or whatever. I mean, he certainly thinks so now. But I, I just think the idea of going back in time and saying that this was something that should, you know, truly deleteriously affect someone's career when no one noticed it at the time is profoundly dangerous. In fact, it's, it's, it's as I write, it's, it's Maoist. This idea that, you know, you can attack the, you can attack people in the present for things that they did that were totally socially justifiable in the past and in the recent past, in the case of these guys, is a really dangerous standard. And it is a sign of the sort of the sickness that's running through our culture. The idea of the Tina Fey, I mean, if you ever watched 30 Rock, the whole point of 30 Rock was that she was, you know, as 
a sort of quintessential Upper West Side Obama liberal. And, um, you know, the idea that, and, and that's what I think Tina Fey is in real life to a large extent. And now I see that, you know, they're really trying to cancel her. And I just think it's, it's ridiculous. And it's really ridiculous that it's your fault to conservatives to have to defend these people when we're usually the top, you know, the subject of their ire. Um, so anyway, it's just, I think it's a grotesquerie. Uh, and then there's, what is there? Oh, and then the last part of the G file was just some rank punditry about Trump. Um, the long and for, long and short of it is, all these people who are you know every day I see Ari Fleischer and you know even Carl Rove and and all the sort of professional political consultants, as well as the usual pundits on Fox and other places, explaining how everything will be fine once Biden comes out of his basement. And Donald Trump no longer makes it a referendum on, makes the campaign no longer a referendum on Trump, but a choice between Trump and Biden. And I understand the argument. I think on paper, the argument makes perfect sense. Um, I, it's not as persuasive to me on its own terms as um, it would be in a normal election, precisely because um, Biden's a known quality. He's not scary. Trump is the incumbent and uh, people think the country's on the wrong track and Trump is, is disliked by a majority of people. So making it a choice is a more difficult task than it normally would be. Um, but the real problem with this analysis, where I think a lot of my friends are kidding themselves, is this idea that Trump is constitutionally, psychologically um, capable of not making this a referendum about himself. He always wants it to be, he wants everything to be about him. And, you know, and so the, 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 the eye opener for me or where this sort of clicked into place in my head was I watched that, you know, hilarious interview with Hannity from last night where Hannity basically just, you know, you know figuratively gets on one knee and bequeaths to him the mother of all softballs and asks, perfectly legitimate question, asks, uh, you know, do some compare and contrast. What is at stake in this election? What, you know, essentially, what will we get? What is your agenda for the next four years? Um, and how it would be different from Biden? And any politician in this kind of situation would have a ready answer for that. And given how much, you know, the team, Trump team and the, Hannity, and, the, and the Hannity team work together, I have to assume that they knew specifically that this question was coming. And even if, it, even if there wasn't collusion, they had to have to know just as a matter of like basic common sense, this question was coming. And Trump gave no indication whatsoever that the question had ever occurred to him, that it was an important one to answer correctly. Instead, he goes on this ramble about the value of experience, how it's an important word, it's a meaningful word, and how he used to live in Manhattan, but now he's lived in D.C. for four years. And that means he knows stuff. And John Bolton is bad, which he now knows. And it might as well have just ended with him saying, does anybody smell burnt hair and keeling over? And it just it's it, to me, it just sort of, you know, lit a bulb in my head that says this guy doesn't want an election. That's a choice between two competing philosophies. He doesn't want to have an argument about who's got a better plan. Um, he doesn't want to have, have the reason to vote for him before an agenda. He wants the reason to vote for him to be because Trump is awesome. 
And so the idea that all it will take for Trump to all of a sudden have a disciplined campaign where he um, makes this about a choice, not a referendum, uh, once Biden comes out of his lair, um, rests on a proposition that Trump can be somebody other than he is. And I think a lot of these talking points that you hear constantly about this are basically just filler. They're just something to say that sounds reassuring to, you know, a fan base that wants to hear something reassuring. I just don't think that they're actually true. Um, I'm not saying everybody who offers it in bad faith is offering it in bad faith. Um, I just think they haven't really thought it through very much because I just, you know, the, the idea of him having a running a disciplined campaign where he his personality recedes in importance and the issues become the central thing just presumes a different Donald Trump than exists. He doesn't know how to debate the issues in any granular detail. I mean, four years in, he still doesn't know what tariffs do. He still doesn't know what TPP was. So the guy who's going to run is going to run wanting to make this a referendum about him. And sure, he'll have some stuff about how it's a choice between him and Biden. And he'll say Biden is brain dead and stupid and sleepy and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Fine. But those are just insults that get him through. For him, the issue really has to be about him. And that makes this this sort of rosy scenario prediction that it'll all work out once it's a real binary choice kind of thing. I just think just totally unpersuasive. Um, it's a binary choice for the people who already believe it's a binary choice. And, you know, and the people who think Trump is awesome or that, you know, Joe Biden is going to be, you know, the supreme leader of Antifa or something like that, they've already decided. I just don't think it's a persuadable, I don't think it's a persuasive argument for the voters who he actually needs to persuade, which is what I wrote my column about today. With not the G file, but my actual syndicated column. Okay, with that done, one last bit of house cleaving. Um, I found it really kind of fascinating how, um, you know, so on Wednesday, contrary to many prophecies, I wrote an entire G file where I never mentioned Donald Trump and all I did was criticize Democrats. And it reminded me of how I got to stop listening to the bulk of criticism that I get um, when it comes to this kind of stuff. Because I got a bunch of people telling me in the comments and an email and elsewhere, you know, oh, so, uh, you know, did, you know, what about Donald Trump? What about Donald Trump? Didn't he do anything wrong? Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Um, why do you only criticize Democrats? And I was like, my God, you know, what are you talking about? Most days, if I criticize Donald Trump, all I hear from people is all you do is criticize Donald Trump. Why don't you ever criticize Democrats? And then I criticize Democrats and all I hear is all you do is Democrat criticize Democrats. What about Donald Trump? You know, I'm, I'm happy to show people my scorecard about how I'm playing all this, but I, I, you know, I am, I'm very democratic in all of this, small D democratic. I have contempt for lots of people across the ideological aisle. All right. So this morning I asked uh, Twitter followers to come up with uh, potpourri topics for the remnant. And I saved a couple of them or a few of them. Um, where to begin? Someone whose name on Twitter is social di distancing stable genius asks, "What do you think of a Biden presidency? What What do you think a Biden pre presidency will be like? Um, and will those who are active on Twitter and pulling down statues of Grant, Lincoln, and other abolitionists for being insufficiently woke by today's standards drive the policy agenda?" 
in four years would Biden be capable of running? Okay, so in order, I don't know for sure what a Biden presidency would be like. I do not think that he would be um, all that left wing. I think he'll be left. I mean, he'll be liberal for sure. And I think you know the Trump supporters who say he'll be basically a a, a, a doormat for the left have have some credibility. I mean, I think that's a real danger. Um, at the same time, I think Biden has some core political instincts that are actually pretty Clinton-esque about triangulating, about, you know, about being um, attractive to people across, um, maybe not, you know, on the far right, but attractive to moderates and centrists and that kind of thing. Plus, he's got a long track record that shows that he's kind of, he's, he was never a centrist Democrat in the way like the DLC Democrats were. He was a triangulator between, he was a centrist within the Democratic Party, not a centrist between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. He split the difference between the left-wing base and the sort of corporate, culturally conservative um, uh, center-right Democrats. And so he was sort of on the left wing of a lot of the DLC stuff, except when it came to some corporate stuff, because he really was just a pawn of the credit card companies since he's from Delaware, um, and that's how that works. Um, do I think, um, but I, I think he has got a sensibility about him that as long as he remains, you know, compass mentis, that it will not stand him well in the history books if he lays down for the sort of Black Lives Matter crowd. And I think it's really, this is an important point. Um, this notion that the Democratic Party is being run by the AOC Black Lives Matter crowd is a distortion. Obviously, there's some truth to it, but the reality is, is that most of the media attention goes to that crowd the MSNBC crowd is very sympathetic to the AOC, Black Lives Matter crowd, and all that kind of stuff. But the actual Democrats who won back the House in 2018, far, far more of them were, uh, you know, more moderate, more centrist. They were running in districts, a lot of them that went for Trump. And they're not interested in defunding the police. Um, and this idea, there's a slippery slope argument embedded in a lot of this stuff that simply says once the Democrats get into power, um, you know, everything will be over. That was the Flight 93 nonsense from 2016, you know, and the simple fact is if you look at, you know, whether this is still a truly center-right country or not is debatable, but it is not a center-left country yet. And you know, everyone who thought that the election of Barack Obama was going to destroy the country forgets that Barack Obama basically didn't get anything significant passed after 2010. He lost the House. He lost the Senate. He lost, I think, in total, a little over a thousand elected officials um, across the country uh, for the Democratic Party. This country has a snapback ability. It has a self-correction ability. But if all you can do is imagine the worst case scenario in the next election and all that, it's very hard to see that, you know, the country is not at stake in a single election. And in fact, if it is at stake in a single election, the country is already over. 
Um, I do think there's a more likely possibility. The more likely possibility for Biden isn't that he becomes the Joan of Arc of wokeness, but that he actually becomes LBJ. LBJ was incapable of dealing with the rebellious animal spirits, the protest culture, all of that kind of stuff when he was president. He just couldn't, he couldn't deal and the left turned on him. It is entirely possible that once Biden fulfills his mandate in pushing Trump out of office, that the left eats him alive. And I, I, I think that that is a more likely scenario. And one of the things to think about in that kind of scenario is if the left eats him alive, you know, he'll have his hundred days and all that kind of stuff to be sure. Um, but if the F, if the left really does eat him alive, that creates an opportunity for the Republican party to actually portray itself as a sane party again. Um, you know, and this gets to this larger point, which I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on, but there's this larger point that I know all of these people, you know, friends of mine who think that the reason to vote for Donald Trump is that he's as, as, um, Sarah said on the Dispatch podcast, paraphrasing a friend of hers, he's an oppositional force to all the bad things on the left. And I just don't see it that way. I mean, I honestly don't. I know he says words out of his mouth that people find encouraging on this stuff, but does he persuade people? Does he move more people to the conservative column than he chases out of it? Um, it seems to me, I'm, again, I'm with Ross on this. I just, I think he's a catalyzing figure, a galvanizing figure. He's enabled the hard left and the moderate left and the center left to, you know, look past their differences and form a popular front. And what you want in a Republican president, if you're a conservative, is someone who, who gives you enough stuff on the base that you don't feel like you've given up the store, but at the same time converts customers to the cause. And, you know, Trump doesn't do that. And I actually think that the Republican Party very easily could be in much worse shape in four, after four more years of Donald Trump. This is not an endorsement to Joe Biden. I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden. I'm not going to endorse Joe Biden. Um, but um, I do not think it is obvious to me that the least worst scenario is the one where Donald Trump gets reelected. Um, and I, I actually think you can make a more plausible case that um, the damage that he would do after four more years of this nonsense uh, would be greater in terms of the American public's attachment to anything that resembles traditional conservatism uh, than any damage that could be done by Joe Biden in four years. Okay, so the last part of that question was, um, in four years, would Biden be capable of running? I highly doubt it. He's almost hinted that he's going to be a one-termer. It would not shock me if he didn't finish his term, which is why there are enormous stakes for his vice presidential pick. Um, but so there we go. Uh, let's see. Adam Peterson asks, can you talk about writing and how you create a discipline of writing and editing with how much content you produce? Uh... So, I mean, I don't have universal rules for this stuff. Um, I'm aided in part by the fact that I have lots of deadlines and deadlines focus your 
um, you're thinking pretty well, uh, which is one of the reasons why I, I actually like election days rather than these rolling two-month affairs that we get a lot of the time with absentee voting and all that. Um, but um, I, the discipline for me is just simply um, I enjoy writing. And, um, um, and I, and so I really don't know how to put this. I guess one way to put it is, so, um, as some of you might suspect, I am not a really dedicated runner. Um, but I know people who are and not, not just Jack Butler. And one of the things you often hear from people who are really into running um, or other physical disciplines is that you just got to do it every day, you know, and you have to get to a point where the idea of not doing it makes you uncomfortable. And so I hate taking columns off. Um, I hate missing my normal routine of, of, of deadlines and, and obligations and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, and I also have sort of convinced myself that writer's block doesn't exist. Just my definition of writer's block is fear of writer's block, which I don't know if it may, that makes sense to anybody, um, outside of my car right now, but, um, it always sort of makes sense for me. Um, the other thing which I've talked about a bunch, uh, is this idea. It's actually at the beginning of Tyranny Clichés, my underrated second book, where I, um, you know, I tell this story. I think I've told it on here before. Um, when George Will got his column, he called William F. Buckley and said, how the hell am I going to write two columns a week? And Bill said, oh, that's easy. At least two things a week will annoy you. And that's what you write about. And when you've been doing this for as long as I have, I've had a syndicated column for, I think, exactly 20 years. And I've been writing on, an, on a daily or near daily schedule for about 23 years. And then I wrote before that, you know, freelance. Um, you develop a sort of uh, an ability to just, when you watch the news, you listen for things that annoy you. You listen for things that are significant and annoy you. Um, and you use that annoyance as a muse. Now you can overdo it and just become a crank and all that kind of stuff. But the way I look at it for a healthy, a healthy approach is that it's not annoying in the sense that it's just annoying. I mean, I use some of that in the G file. It's annoying because you think someone is getting away with an argument that isn't true or that isn't right. And you want to push back on it. And it's a way of gaining access creatively or psychologically to an argument. And, um, you know, that's what I do with 95% of my stuff is I make arguments and I respond to arguments and I, that, that's how it works for me. Um, and the one piece of advice I have for young writers who want to write is write. Um, I can't tell you how many people you meet over the years who, when you're in my line of work or even like, you know, before I was in all of this, you know, I grew up with my mom being a literary agent, an enormous number of people who fancy themselves as writers who don't write and you know, they claim they're working on something or they claim they have an idea for something, but they don't actually write and they don't write in a disciplined way. And the, 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 the simple fact is, is that a big chunk of writing is, is essentially muscle memory. It's wax on wax off. It's just trusting your fingers to put out the words 
You always have to go back and look at them afterwards. Um, but the less you do something like running or um, weightlifting or, you know, uh, shovel fighting in the subterranean labyrinths under Kiev, um, the less you do it, the rustier you get. The more you do it, the more you can just sort of rely on your muscle memory to, to power through. And, um, and you, you learn sometimes not even consciously um, how to do it better and better and faster and faster. I'll think more about the question, but that's all I got for you right now. Um, Evan Serpic asks, who am I voting for in November? Curious your opinions of Bolton's and Fiorina's rationales for voting for a writing candidate and Biden respectively. Um, uh, well, I don't know who I'm voting for. I'm never going to vote for Donald Trump. I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden. We've talked about this a bunch of times. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. My vote has no influence. Um, I get very, very tired of this argument that the moment I make a decision to vote for X, I must therefore change what I write and what I argue um, to be uh, uh, a resource or a, or a surrogate for X. Um, and I just don't, that's not how I'm wired. That's not how I think about it. Um, it may be how I thought about it in the past, but I'm just sick of all of it. As I've said a thousand times here, I am just sick of being a de facto, even in a little bit of a de facto sort of political consultant or party operative. I just don't want to do it. Um, and I agree that sometimes I can be too impatient with people who still want to do it, but it's not for me. And, um, you know, this, I, you know, I, a hundred times a week, someone's like, well, who are you going to support? As if, if I supported Donald Trump for reelection, I would stop criticizing Donald Trump. It's just not how I work. And it does get to this point I've been making over and over again about how so many people in my line of work have almost often subconsciously internalized the idea that what they really should be doing is party work rather than intellectual work or analytical work or repertorial work. And um, that's not how I see it. So I, um, I'm not much interested in talking about who I will vote for. Uh, I've said already I'm not going to vote for Trump and I'm not going to vote for Biden. But I also just don't think it's a Rosetta Stone into anything about me. Um, I think Bolton's and Fiorina's positions are both fine. Um, I, I, I just, I reject the binary choice stuff. Um, and I think writing in someone is perfectly fine. There is more nuance and messaging um, availabilities than a yes or a no, um, or a, you know, an X or not X vote. And, um, and if you don't think every election is a flight 93 election, there's nothing wrong with strategically voting over the long term, right. Of sending a signal for the next election or the one after that. Um, so, uh, you know, in Bolton's rationale, I suspect has as much, it's probably similar to mine in some ways, but I also think it's has something to do with his desire to remain, you know, a sort of one day or return, I shouldn't say remain, return to being a viable uh, dinner speaker circuit type. Um, but I don't see anything wrong with saying you're not going to, you're going to write in somebody else or saying that you're going to vote for, for Biden. I think the funny thing about Fiorina voting for Biden, and I like Carly Fiorina, full disclosure. Uh, my wife worked with her on Fiorina's book. Um, 
And my colleague, Sarah Isger, uh, is very close to Carly Fiorina. I think Fiorina is a very impressive lady. Um, I just think it's sort of funny that Ted Cruz's uh, uh, running mate, remember he announced his running mate while, while trying to beat Trump in 2016, um, is now voting for Biden, which tells you something interesting. I'm just not sure what. Uh, let's see. Uh, Clement N. Flinch wants to know my opinion of Michelle Malkin. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I think she's lost her mind. I think what she represents is really sad. Um, she has become, you know, I used to get along fine with her. I knew her pretty well. Um, but when you start, you know, defending Holocaust deniers and anti-Semites, um, when you um, play footsie with all sorts of racist forces, um, and when you just say batshit crazy things, over and over again, at some point, uh, it's just time to cut bait. And so I don't pay a lot of attention to her. I think it was really sad that Jeff Sessions had a um, fundraiser that she was headlining. Um, and uh, um, and I, I, since I believe in redemption. I sincerely hope she comes to her senses one day. Um, John Rambin would love to hear my thoughts on Project Lincoln and Revo Republican voters against Trump. Uh, this is, you know, this is an interesting one. I don't, if you haven't noticed, I don't retweet a lot of their stuff. I look at a lot of their stuff, and I know a lot of those guys at both Project Lincoln and Republican Voters Against Trump. Um, I have no philosophical problem with what they are doing, but as part of this whole thing about not being a party guy, I just want to stay apart from it. Um, it's not my thing, and I'm fine with offering opinions about politicians and parties and all that kind of stuff, but there's just something I want to avoid about seeming like I'm telling people how to vote one way or the other. I'm sure I get no credit for this from Trump world, um, and I probably don't get much credit for it from Tim Miller and Bill Kristol and all of those guys. Um, but it does raise sort of an interesting point um, that Steve Tellers kind of talked about uh, when I had him on to talk about his Never Trump book, in that as the parties are going through profound changes um, and the coalitions are shifting around, there is an argument from a conservative perspective to creating at least a camel's nose, you know, getting a camel's nose under the tent for conservatives in the Democratic Party. I mean, we would be, we would, it would be better for conservatism if there were more liberals in the Republican Party and more conservatives in the Democratic Party. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that I want the Republican Party to become liberal. But let's assume we're talking about 2014, pre-Trump and all of that. Um, by all means, you, you know, this used to drive me crazy. You want, you know, the, the, the what's his name, the Jim DeMint thing about how he'd rather have 30 real conservatives than 60, you know, rhinos or whatever, whatever. I can't remember the exact formulation. It's nuts. It's nuts. You know, what you want from a Republican in the Republican Party, the minimal thing that you want is you want them to caucus with the Republicans, to vote for your speaker or your majority leader, to give you the majority powers to run the place. And once you've done that, then everything else is kind of a negotiation. Um, and so, like, you would meet these people all the time in, in conservative world 
who would be like, you know, oh, you know, these rhinos running in New England, you know, we don't need that kind of thing. Why can't we have a real conservative instead of like, what is what was his name? Tim Brown or something, Scott Brown. Because Barry Goldwater cannot win in Massachusetts. Um, you know, Dick Cheney cannot win in Maine. And so you, you go for the guys, you go for the candidates that can actually put Republicans in the seats. And if that makes them disproportionately rhino squishy types, well, that's the price you pay. And it's worth it if you get to be in the majority. The people I always, and this is a point Ramesh always used to make, um, the people I always had much more contempt for were the Republican senators from deep red states. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but, you know, the Wyomings, the Alabamas, the Mississippis, who could afford to lose 10 points on Election Day, right? I mean, when you win by 25 points, essentially running unopposed, um, you have a lot more leash to be entrepreneurial on policy. And yet most of those guys were the most risk-averse, boring, um, uh, non-entrepreneurial politicians out there. And, you know, I mean, an exception to that would be someone like Mike Lee, who actually swings for the fences a lot, and I admire him for it. Um, um, you know, he actually is trying to do something. I don't always agree with him, but, you know, I really admire him. You know, he's, he's trying to do something um, with the seat that he has. A lot of these guys just wanted to sit there and, and do it. I mean, just sit there and have the honorific of being a senator and then really not do anything. And um, so anyway, the point that Steve Tellers is making, which I think is a good one, is that if you can get a little more sway within, for if conservatives can get a little more sway within the Democratic Party, that's a good thing for conservatism. And this was the point, you know, my old boss, uh, Ben Wattenberg, was this guy um, who helped found this thing called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority and a lot of the sort of second wave neocons, uh, Richard Pearl, um, Ben, I'm trying to think, Josh Morovchik. Um, uh, anyway, I can come up with some better names later. I'm blanking right now. Uh, Gene Kirkpatrick. Uh, they founded this thing, which then was sort of the precursor of the Democratic Leadership Council. They founded it to help pull the Democratic Party to the right. And um, they became sort of a faction within the Democratic Party uh, that was trying to force the Democratic Party to come to its senses. Now, uh, and there's actually a famous story when Pat Moynihan was one of these guys. And, you know, and so these guys worked pretty hard to help get Jimmy Carter elected. And, um, and after the election, they get, I mean, I may be butchering the story, but this is the gist of it. After election, the CDM guys, they weren't called the DLC quite yet. Uh, they sent a list of people that they wanted, you know, to get jobs in the administration. And, um, and it was like a list, I don't know, of 70 or 100, you know, people. And only one, Carter only picked one of them for an administration job. And it was as ambassador to Micronesia. And Pat Moynihan, you know, according to the story said, Micronesia, they couldn't even give us Macronesia. Um, but anyway, you know, look, I mean, say what you will about Bill Crystal, who I consider a friend and he's a conservative, you know, he's not, 
He's not a good Republican anymore, <laughs> to be sure. He wouldn't blanch at that. But he's a conservative guy. He's well to the right of basically anybody in the Democratic Party. Um, it would be better for conservatism, but not necessarily better for the Republican Party if Bill Kristol led a faction within the Democratic Party. And so what the Republican voters against Trump and the Lincoln Project guys are trying to do in the context of moving the center of gravity of American politics rightward, um, you know, put aside the anti-Trump part of it, I think, you know, it might be actually a good thing on the merits for conservatism. And, you know, this is the point I keep coming back to is that the point of being a conservative is not to get the Republican Party elected. The point of being a conservative if you're going to be active in politics or in ideas and all and messaging and communications and all that kind of stuff, the is to get conservative policy enacted and to move the country in a rightward way so that any policy achievements that you um, accomplish are likely to have some staying power. And I think that Donald Trump is pushing the center of gravity of American politics leftward. And it is not inconceivable to me that uh, a Biden presidency could at least stabilize that shift um, and possibly reverse it a little bit. But it wouldn't happen in one election. It wouldn't happen because Biden wants it to happen. It would happen because politics is complicated, culture is complicated, and you want um, to take into account that, you know, this is a long, uh, long haul game and it's not all just about electing one slate of politicians in one year. All right, I said enough about that. Uh, let's see. Um, you speak well of, but in passing, about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, I'd be interested in a deep dive and why you like them. To me, they seem like the worst parts of the Holy Roman Empire and Byzantine Empire combined in one package. All right, I'm not going to do, I want to do a full Austro-Hungarian Empire episode of The Remnant. So I'm not going to do all of that here, but I guess part of the reason why I like the Austro-Hungarian Empire is that you don't get Austrian, you don't get the Austrian school without it. There was something about the milieu of Austria in the late 19th century, early 20th century that um, was very special and very beneficial. It's what, you know, Hayek and von Mises and all those guys come out, out from uh, Joseph Schumpeter too. Uh, those, there's debates about whether he was an Austrian economist. I mean, he was Austrian, but whether he was an Austrian economist. Um, and I also like the Austro-Hungarian Empire because in the context of the time, it was something of a liberal empire. Um, it was a free trade zone, essentially. Um, it was uh, a fair, I mean, the Hungarian part, had some problems, I will commit, I will admit. Um, but it was, in its culture, kind of dedicated to something larger than nationalism. It had to be because it was an empire. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, and it produced a lot of intellectuals I, you know, I really like and admire, like Eric von Knudlin and, and, um, and also the Austrian school. Um, I should point out, you know, uh, I, I write briefly about the German historicist school in the G-File today, and it's worth pointing out that the Austrian school gets the name the Austrian school because it was seen as this dissenting, sort of like a, it was seen as a dissenting school from the reigning intellectual orthodoxy of the historicist school at the time. It was basically all these guys in, in Berlin and Cologne saying, ah, 
the Austrian school. And the difference between the two was that the Austrian school actually believed in universal liberal principles, at least when it came to economics, but also sort of to a lot else. And the German historicist school believed everything was Darwinian and Hegelian and contextual and that you couldn't judge different societies based upon universal standards and that, you know, that societies grow organically and all of these, all this stuff. I don't want to get deep in the weeds on it, but um, I just think it's sort of, I didn't mention in the G-File, but um, that's actually where we get the term, the Austrian school. It was a pejorative. Um, let's see. I don't want to talk about fact-checking. Um, oh, okay. So one thing that's not on here that I kind of wanted to talk about briefly was um, social Darwinism. And the only reason I want to bring it up, I actually have the piece open here, is that Patrick Deneen um, has a piece over at the uh, American Compass. And I want to stipulate right now that one of the running jokes when we were trying to create the dispatch is that I cannot, not only can I not pronounce Compass correctly, I can't hear how I'm not pronouncing it correctly. And uh, Steve and Toby would make fun of me ad nauseum. They would just say, say it again, say it again. And I just, I just don't hear it. I don't know how I'm mispronouncing it. They've tried to explain it to me. Um, they'll say, it's not compass, it's compass, um, which is sort of like the, uh, the Maxwell Smart episode where um, the claw, the sort of Chinese Mandarin character, supervillain character, um, whenever get whenever Maxwell Smart would see him, you know, often sort of in a Scooby-Doo way where he was revealed to be the sinister mastermind behind some plot, Maxwell Smart would always say, ah, the craw. And I mean, it's, it's a racist joke about his Asian, his Chinese accent, but the claw would then say, not craw, craw, um, which my brother used to say all of the time. Um, almost with no provocation whatsoever, sort of like this. Anyway, American Compass. Deneen writes about how um, there's no libertarian tradition in America, that the founders weren't Lockeans, or at least most of them weren't. Um, and uh, I don't want to get into all of that. I thought about like writing a response to this whole thing. I think there's some real flaws with it, though <laughs> it is nice to see Deneen uh, defending the American founding for a change. Um, but then he has, then there's the, a, a specific passage where he says, um, yeah, yeah. So there's this passage where he says, he's, he's arguing with, um, George Will and somebody else about, um, you know, whether or not the founding was Lockean by which he means libertarian. I'm not sure that's right to conflate the two terms, but fine. Um, he then says... Indeed, as a school of thought, a pure form of philosophical libertarianism was not a significant presence in American history until its articulation as social Darwinism in the early 20th century. Now, I have, I have some, I mean, the, the, the claim triggers me in a bunch of different ways. Um, it's more defensible than on some fronts than others. Uh, but this social Darwinism thing really bothers me. Um, social Darwinism is one of these things that lots of smart people talk about as if 
there's agreed upon definition. Everybody knows what it is. Um, and that it was somehow a manifestation of right-wing thinking. And it's just, just none of it is true. Um, uh, the, first of all, so the guy who's mainly responsible for this is Richard Hofstetter, the political historian who wrote a book, Social Darwinism and something, something at the, you know, I can't remember the subtitle and, uh, read the book. Interesting book. It is so tendentious and so wrong about so much. Um, he claims that in the 19th century and early 20th century, that, uh, Social Darwinism was a philosophical school that was out there. He claims that the robber barons subscribed to something called social Darwinism, this idea of survival of the fittest, which is a phrase that does come from this guy, Herbert Spencer, who was a big 19th century libertarian type. Um, and Herbert Spencer, my God, does he get unfairly demonized as like this caricature of a guy. I, know I could go deep in the weeds and all this stuff, but the point here is that um, uh, well, a bunch of different points. One, of all of the social Darwinists that Hofstetter and everybody claims were social Darwinists, virtually none of them called themselves social Darwinists. Second of all, there were almost no mentions of the phrase, of the term social Darwinism in the period when social Darwinism was supposed to be at its height. Um, they did a huge study of like literally every scholarly journal um, published in those years. And there were like 11 references to the term social Darwinism. Most didn't mean what we mean by what people mean by social Darwinism. I, I think all but one weren't in America. Um, I get into this again in pretty deep detail and tyranny cliches. Um, Herbert Spencer didn't call himself a social Darwinist. Um, William Graham Sumner didn't call himself a social Darwinist. And here's the important point, since we talked about eugenics last week, what social Darwinism allegedly meant was this idea that everybody's on their own, that everyone has to fend for themselves, that um, uh, it's survival of the fittest, right? The economy is survival of the fittest. And they called Reagan a social Darwinist, they called Newt Gingrich a social Darwinist, and all these kinds of things. The thing that's really annoying about all of this is that the people who work, and others, the famous line from, um, I think it's Buck V. Bell, where um, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, in, is ruling about the need for forced sterilization or something like that. Well, I mean, that's what he argued in Buck V. Bell. I'm just not sure the quote is from there. Um, but at some point he says, look, you know, the Constitution doesn't ratify Herbert, Spencer, Herbert Spencer's social statics. The whole thing was that Herbert Spencer basically said, was basically a libertarian, said that he was very much in favor of charity, he was very much in favor of helping the, uh, the less fortunate and all that kind of stuff, contrary to a century of attacks on him. But he was just deeply skeptical about state interventions. He was a libertarian. And so this was called social Darwinism. And it was derided as this cruel thing. It then got conflated with Nazism. Um, and that, you know, because Hitler talked about survival of the fittest and Spencer invented the phrase, a phrase which Darwin accepted, that somehow that meant Spencer was kind of a Nazi, which is just garbage. And um, so the thing that annoys me about all of this is that the people who were condemning social Darwinism 
which lots of people today think means um, eugenics and that kind of stuff, were the actual eugenicists. These were the people who thought the reason why social Darwinism was a bad idea was that it let people live their own lives and reproduce as they saw fit rather than being, you know, sterilized, you know, uh, segregated from the population, all of these kinds of things. And so you get this weird confluence of things where people call right-wingers social Darwinists and racist eugenicists when it was the racist eugenicists who didn't like social Darwinism because social Darwinism was laissez-faire and didn't want to discriminate against the unfit or lesser races or any of these kinds of things. It wanted to treat people with human dignity and let them work out their lives on their own. And that's supposed to be the evil position. And so anyway, that every time I see the social Darwinism stuff, it kind of drives me crazy. Um, and, you know, in fairness to Deneen, social Darwinism in the way he's using it could be called libertarianism, but he's using it in a pejorative way that I think is unfair both to actually Herbert Spencer and to the people who were the, essentially the libertarians of the 19th century. And it's buying into a thoroughly, if you actually want to read up on this, read Thomas Leonard's work on this stuff. Um, he's got a wonderful, I actually opened it the other day. Um, I used it a lot for two of my books. The Origins of the Myth of Social Darwinism, The big Ambiguous Legacy of Richard Hofstetter's Social Darwinism in American Thought. You can Google it. Guy's name is Thomas Leonard. It's a fantastic piece of scholarship. Um, he's a serious guy at Princeton. Um, anyway, uh, the, you know, the whole idea that the, and there's another book. What else did I use for this? Um, the Progressive Revolution in American Thought, I believe. It's a collection of essays. Gets into this as well. Um, the whole idea that the robber barons, um, who were neither robbers nor barons, um, were social Darwinists um, that were, were guided by this sort of idea of biological supremacy or, or survival of the fittest is just nonsense. And it's just nonsense through and through. Like one, like the, the, the kid Rockefeller read some social Darwin, you know, some, some Herbert Spencer type stuff and had some ideas along these, uh, along these lines. But the, the robber baron Rockefeller didn't, neither did Getty or, or Vanderbilt or any of those guys. I mean, I remember, um, you know, this idea that these guys were motivated by these intellectual currents was sort of undermined that one of them, I think it was Vanderbilt, um, said that in his whole life, he only read one book, um, and it was Pilgrim's Progress, which is the famous allegorical Christian story. Um, and he didn't read it until he was like 75. But the Hofstetter thing about social Darwinism has embedded itself um, across a certain segment of the intellectual left. Um, and it has just become to mean, it's just become this sort of magic talisman that you can aim at people to make them into bad people. And um, anyway, so as for Deneen's larger point about how the founders weren't all that libertarian and all that kind of stuff, one of the reasons why I didn't write my response to Patrick, who I like, he was a nice guy. I mean, I have profound disagreements with him, but he's a good guy, um, is that I'm actually doing a sort of a debatey thing for Newsweek with him. And I thought it'd be weird for me to write something for the dispatch, picking a fight with him when I'm doing this thing for Newsweek. I thought that'd be poor form. 
Um, but I, uh, just very quickly, I think among the things that he gets wrong are, first of all, th this idea that Locke and libertarian Lockeanism and libertarianism are somehow um, synonymous, but also that um, the that there's that much that's sort of controversial about the claim that the founders weren't pure libertarians. Um, you know, the I've made this point a zillion times. You know, if you sit on a, if you if you've been on as many panels discussing conservatism versus libertarianism as I have, there's always this moment where this kid who may not be wearing a propeller beanie, um, which by the way I learned a couple years ago was invented by the guy who wrote the short story that They Live, the movie with Roddy Roddy Piper is based on. He, th that author invented uh, the propeller beanie. Anyway, um, you may have some kid, the kid may not be wearing a propeller beanie, he may not have his Adam Smith or Edmund Burke or Friedrich Hayek tie on, but some kid will get up and say, you know, look, this whole fight between you guys, between the conservatives and the libertarians about, you know, uh, who's right on some profound principle wouldn't all these things be solved if we just returned to the constitutional order enshrined in the Constitution that set up a federalist system where people were, um, where power was sent back to the lowest common, the lowest level, and people got to live the way they wanted to live, whether it was you know the right to live conservatively or the right to live liberally, and we just didn't impose that from above from Washington. Wouldn't that solve all of this? And the conservatives and libertarians, for the most part, always look at each other, chuckle, and say, "Yep." That would do it. And so, you know, Deneen's argument about how there were far more communitarian or socially conservative, um, you know, communities, and including, you know, state churches in the early part of the, the first couple decades of the United States in various states, and that proves that everyone wasn't a libertarian, is fine by me. I mean, it just doesn't bother me at all. But I think what it does, and this is one of the things I get into in the Newsweek thing, is it it just simply elides over the fact that we had a pretty libertarian culture in the sense of lots of Americans wanted to be left alone, did not want, at the local level or at the federal level, the government pushing them around, telling them what to do. Um, that's That kind of Lockeanism, that kind of libertarianism is very much part of American culture, and it doesn't stem from Locke's writings. It stems from English culture and American culture. And you don't, you know, you can defeat Locke um, like in a game of mortal combat, you know, and yank his head with the spine attached out and prove for all time that Locke was wrong about everything. It won't change the fact that Americans are a pretty libertarian people who don't like to be bossed around. And this, this tendency to sort of reduce everything down to the fruit of the poisoned tree of Locke's second treatise on government or something misses this larger cultural question. Anyway, um, where was I on this? Oh, so yeah, so the, the, the thing that bothers me the most about this kind of argument is where Ladine again, I mean, not Ladine, uh, where, where Deneen is rightly pointing out that there was a lot of cultural conservatism, there was a lot of communitarianism, um, that the anti-federalists very much wanted to keep the federal government from tampering with 
uh, the, the social order in various states, including some of these established churches, that's all fine. That's a perfectly fine thing to point out, you know, and, you know, we don't have to get into how the 14th Amendment changed a lot of that stuff. The problem remains is that the project of places like American Compass and, uh, you know, Deneen and Vermeule and Sorab and all of these people is that um, at the 30,000 foot level, they want to take this argument that the Constitution allows for more social variation and experimentation at the local level and somehow think that that proves that the government in Washington can tell everybody how to live. And that just doesn't fly. It makes no sense to me. It is just a total stolen base. Um, so, yeah, let's say that, you know, the... the Commonwealth of Virginia had very anti... Oh, that's probably a bad one because Jefferson was there. Let's say Rhode Island was the perfect sort of uh, social conservative community and that the Constitution allowed it to be a, uh, socially conservative, have, uh, for the sake of argument, let's say it had an established church and that you had to be a member of it to hold public office, all of these things that we don't believe in in this country. But let's just say that's all true for the sake of argument. How did, would that fact then mean that a handful of post-liberal Catholic integralists should be able to make the entire country live the way they did in Rhode Island? Right? It seems like the argument that he's making that there were people who were anti-Lockean or anti-libertarian who wanted um, a more, more diversity of ways of living on the local level is more making my argument than theirs. Right. I mean, Saurabh sees uh, something on Twitter about a drag queen reading a book in Sacramento um, at a library. And he thinks that that's proof that the government should be able to impose the highest good on all 50 states. And forget the philosophical problem I have with that. The practical problem is, is that um, as the, the sort of great awakening we're seeing right now, you know, illuminates is that if you got rid of all of the safeguards that allow for varieties of communities to thrive according to different rules, the one size fits all world that we would be subjected to would not be the socially conservative one that, you know, that a lot of these guys pine for. It would look a hell of a lot more like, you know, San Francisco or Manhattan than it would look like Muncie or Charleston or something. Um, Charleston's probably a bad example because it's probably pretty liberal, but you get the point. And anyway, so it was just, I thought it was a very strange um, sort of essay. There are a lot of interesting things in it, and there are a lot of things I don't necessarily disagree with about, but there are things that in his interpretations I think are wrong. Um, okay, we're going long here, and... Again, I feel like an idiot doing this. I have no idea if this is appreciated or if you just all hate it. So, um, oh, last question then. You get to pick uh, one piece of art in the world to hang in your house and space isn't a problem. What do you choose? Um, I feel like I have a chance to be clever here because of the space isn't a problem and pick, you know, maybe I could save the Jefferson Memorial, um, except I'm not a big Jefferson 
fan. Um, so in terms of a piece of art that I actually really love, I'm open to revising and extending my thoughts on this, but I would say there's a Rembrandt painting called Balthazar's Feast that recounts the tale in the Bible uh, where we get the phrase, you've been measured and found wanting. Um, it's more complicated than that. Um, and I remember the first time I saw it, I was a teenager in London, and I went to the, the British Museum or the Art Museum of Britain, whatever it was called, and it was, I've looked long, I looked longer at that painting than I've ever looked at any painting since, in part just because of the light of it. Um, but I really love that painting, and I have philosophical reasons why I like the painting too. So there's that. Anyway, I'm done. Um, I got to take my daughter for a driving lesson. Um, and uh, please, if you can subscribe to, if, if you can sign up to be a paid member of the Dispatch, that would be awesome. Uh, keep sending me your ideas for um, countdown books for Chris Wallace. He appreciates getting them. I keep forwarding them. And um, other than that, I'll see you next time. Sure.